Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Ephesians as we are continuing in the study of the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Our reading will come from verses 7 through 16. As you remember, Paul writes this from prison. It is considered one of his prison epistles. He writes this under house arrest. He has been in chains for quite some time. He has some freedom, though, to minister. And he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, of which he was fundamentally the founding uh, minister of. And he gives them some instructions. And the book is, of course, uh, that which he begins. We've studied for the first three chapters, foundational theology and doctrine and now chapters 4 through 7 very practical teaching on how that fleshes out and here we will learn about God's way of growing the church verse 7 of chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians it reads this but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, and from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for the reading of your word. And God, we pray that through your word we might grow. And may we see and understand and know who you are all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, churches have dreamed up various ways, various methods, various techniques to grow the church. Some hold a evangelistic contests. Others have everything from video games on Sundays for the kids to wrestling matches for the pastors to draw a crowd, all to accommodate the culture. The pastor sometimes is even shown as the comedian. And I think you can even watch some of these possibly on YouTube or other beans. One church I read about in the Southwest installed a $500,000 special effects system that can produce smoke, fire, sparks, and laser lights in the auditorium. The church staff sent members to study live special effects at Bally's Casino in Las Vegas. 
the pastor ended one service by ascending into, quote-unquote, heaven via invisible wires that drew him up out of sight while the choir and orchestra added a musical accompaniment to the smoke, fire, and light show. It was just a typical Sunday, mind you, show for that pastor, quote, he packs his church with such special effects as cranking up a chainsaw and toppling a tree to make a point. The biggest 4th of July fireworks display in town and a Christmas service with a rented elephant, kangaroo, and zebra. The Christmas show features 100 clowns with gifts for the congregation's children, unquote. Well, there are all sorts of methods and means. I get emails, I get mailings at the church office all the time about church growth seminars, ways to grow the church. Often the focus is on getting a bigger church, more people, and success is measured by the number of people or the amount of money or whatever it might be. Numbers orientation. But God has given to us a method. He has given to us a means by which he is determined that he would grow his church. In fact, it is Jesus who said in Matthew 16:18, I will build my church. And it's important for us to remember that because, you see, this church, any ministry, this church is not my church. Some people have uh, re- referred to that as, oh, that, you know, how, how's your church doing or whatever it means. I know what they sort of mean, but it doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the leadership. It doesn't belong. This is not a corporation that has shareholders or stockholders in the same sense as a biblical sense where the church, it says, belongs to Jesus Christ. And it is Christ who says, very clearly that he will build his church. So this morning we look at the pattern by which God has laid out that he builds up his church so they can become a mature, a mature body. The means by which he does it, first of all, is growing the church through gifted leaders. Gifted leaders, verse 7 through 11. So we look at the first point there. And in verse 7 it says, but to each one of us has been given... Grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The very key word there at the very beginning is the word but. And that's significant. Causes us to look back whenever you see that to verses 1 through 6. Paul has just completed talking about how the church is to be unified. How it is to be together. And we stay together as a body when we exhibit patience with one another. When we exhibit humility. When we exhibit tolerance. There are going to be people in the church, in any church, that rub one another the wrong way. They'll say the wrong thing. They'll do the wrong thing. You may not like this or they may not like that. But we have patience and humility and tolerance towards one another. Unifying the church as it should be. And that is what Paul says. The emphasis here on this passage is how we are to what? See God growing his church, though. The text says that God gives us grace. Grace meaning unmerited favor. And by that, we were saved. In Romans 12, 6, it's very interesting. It says we have been given, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. God has given to us grace. He has given to us grace and he's given to us gifts. And those gifts are spiritual gifts. They're not a present. You didn't receive something physical when you came to know Christ. When you came to know Christ, you were given spiritual gifts. Romans and 1 Corinthians tells us more in detail about our spiritual gifts. But these gifts that he gives to us also are exhibited in the offices or the responsibilities of particular individuals within the church. 
Now, you may have various spiritual gifts. There are various spiritual gifts that are given to you when you come to know Jesus as your Savior. You might have the gift of teaching or the gift of administration or the gift of helps or the gift of mercy, being able to have compassion and sense and care and and be able to do that. Well, there are particular gifts that go along as well with the offices that are given here in this text. And they're given by Christ who has every right to give us those gifts. And that is explained there when, when Paul here uses an illustration from Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. And this is what it says there in the text in verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, why does he use that, and what is the reference, and what is the context of that particular passage? That particular quotation is used by Paul to explain to us that Christ has every right to give gifts to people. In Psalm 68, it pictures God who leads his people Israel out of bondage from Egypt after 400 years. It pictures God who leads them out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai and God gives his people peace. It pictures his enemies scattering before him and he leads them all the way into the promised land. And God is the one who is the victor who leads his people up to Mount Zion or what we would call Jerusalem. As it says, it is another name for Jerusalem. He leads his people up in victory. And when a leader frees his people, he not only has coming behind him the spoils of war or the captured enemies of war, but he has what is called recaptured captives. Recaptured captives. In other words, his own people who were captives, who were in this particular psalm, those who were in bondage in Egypt, he recaptured them and they're captive to him. They serve him. And in the same parallel sense, it isn't it Jesus who, what, rescued us from the bondage of sin, from being captives unto sin, and now we are captives unto Christ. We are slaves of Christ. We are servants of Christ. And that is why he uses this illustration. Because of that, we are paraded behind him as those who are recaptured captives. And he gave gifts, it says. He gave gifts to them. Now, it continues on in verse 9. He ascended and he descended, descended into the lower parts of the earth. When we think about that and understand that phrase, it is in reference to the fact that he came down here on the earth and even to the grave. And in victory from the grave, he arose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he has every right to give whatever gift that he wants to. And so he gave gifts to people. He gave gifts to people. And so one of the implications of that is that you may be gifted in a particular area. I may be gifted in a particular area. Everyone has a different gift. But there's nothing that would say, oh, you're better than me or I'm better than you simply because I have a different gift. Because they were all gifts to us. They were given to you. They were given to me. It's not something that I earned or something that I particularly merited on my own. There are gifts. That's the nature of a gift. You were given a gift. God gave various gifts and various leaders who have those gifts. And it says in verse 11 this. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So let's look at those four. 
There were the apostles and the prophets. And when we look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, you turn just a page or so back there in your Bibles, it says this, that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of the church was laid early on in the establishment of the church. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came after Jesus ascended into heaven. The Spirit of God came and filled individuals and the apostles and the prophets early on led the church. They helped to establish the church. They helped to lay the foundation of the church. The church didn't have the completed scriptures at that time. Because they didn't have the completed scriptures, there was need for those individuals who were the apostles and the prophets of that time, the offices that were there, to help establish the church, to lead the church, to teach the church, to help in founding the church. Once the church is founded, it's simply an implication that they too passed off the scene and that role and that function of apostles and prophets is no longer needed. It's just like when we talk about the, uh, the, the conventions that occurred last November, the political conventions. There were delegates that were representative of each state. Each state would send its delegates to the national convention and they would do their duty of casting their ballots. After the convention is over, however, there's no more need. It would be ridiculous if somebody said, well, they came here and said, I'm a delegate to the national convention to cast an electoral vote. And you'd say, well, the, 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 the convention was three, four, four, five months ago. It's no longer, uh, it's no longer, uh, uh, it's no longer needed. And so, too, the establishment of the church happened in the early centuries of the church, or the early decades, I should say, and that church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so you don't see apostles today. You don't see prophets. There's not someone who is foretelling the future and saying, you know what, next year Jesus is going to come, or whatever they might say. There's no one that is going to make executive decisions on behalf of all Christians on the earth. Their purpose was pointed out in Ephesians 2.20. But for evangelists, there are continuing duties. The role of evangelists still here does exist. And their purpose continues on. The noun form of the word evangelist is euangelion. And it simply means that which is preaching the good news. It means good news. It's the word from which we get evangelistic or, or the word from where we get the word um, uh, uh, evangelical. Their role is to preach the good news and the salvation of Jesus to those who haven't heard the message. Now, an evangelist, they could go to a place. It's not necessarily like when we think of an evangelist. We think of maybe Billy Graham. Or Luis Palau, they might come and put on a big thing and then they'll go on to some other place. That evangelists, those who have the gift of evangelism, could stay in a particular locale for a while. Or there are those who are pastors that are also evangelistic, who have that gift or that role, as Paul told Timothy, to do the work of evangelist. They might stay for a while before moving on. But it it makes sense, makes much sense that God would give an evangelist to the church to continue who is effective at winning souls, that God uses to win souls, who can communicate the gospel very clearly, very winsomely, has the gifts to be able to answer questions perhaps somewhat of an apologist as well. 
The fourth, though, the last office is that of pastor-teacher. Now, some might see that as pastor and teacher as two separate offices, but here I would be inclined to say that they are perhaps one. You'll sometimes see the name of a pastor, and then underneath you'll see his title. It'll say pastor-teacher, and it comes because of this particular passage. There are a few reasons why some would see this as one office rather than two, one gifted office, being that there are some. If you look in your Bibles, some of you might have the word the, or some of you might have the word some. You'll notice it says some as pastors and teachers. You'll notice that that same word is used before the word of apostle or before evangelist. It doesn't have it before the word teacher because they are linked together in the mind's eye of this author. The conjunction that is used between pastor and teacher in the Greek is also different that is used in other parts of the same verse. And the pastoring teaching role is that which is linked together by Paul once again in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17 where it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, or literally labor to exhaustion in word and teaching. So there is some ambiguity and some might see it as pastor-teacher, some might see it as pastor and another one being a teacher. But here in this text, it seems to lean towards that being one office or one gifted office or role. All pastors are teachers, though all teachers are not pastors, so they're not necessarily always linked together. But here in this text, it seems to be. So in short, God gave gifted leaders those of apostles and prophets in the early establishment of the foundation of the church. And then he gave evangelists and teachers or pastor teachers in order to help to grow the church. The second means by which God grows the church comes in verse 12 to 13. Growing the church through maturing Christians. Through maturing Christians. It says in verse 12, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And in verse 13, it tells us about that we might be a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The responsibility of the gifted leaders is to help equip the saints so that they might serve. And thirdly, that the church can be built up. Their primary role is that of equipping Christians, equipping Christians. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us the means by which that equipping occurs because oftentimes when we think of equipping, we think of a seminar, a, perhaps a training class or some other systematic, some sort of structured in which one is equipped or one is trained. But that's not the only means. Those are often common means, but not the only means by which people are equipped. They're equipped primarily, though, through the word of God. Through the Word of God, people are equipped. And that is the purpose of Scripture, as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. Those of you who are very familiar with that verse know that it says all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Adequate. Equipped for every good work. 
Equipping comes through the Word of God. I mean, we may learn good techniques for evangelism. We may learn good techniques for, for uh, administering the church or for teaching or whatever. And those are wonderful. But equipping, in this sense of the term, is spiritually equipping one. And that comes through the Word of God. And that is why it is so very important that a church emphasize the teaching of the Word of God during our Sunday morning services, during the Sunday Bible class, or during small groups, or whatever it might be. It's not to say that other groups, such as accountability groups, or what, are invalid, or, or that it's not proper to have various special subjects. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that the primary emphasis or focus needs to be the Word of God, because that is the means by which the, the people of God are equipped the primary role of a pastor is not that of a businessman. It's not that of a, uh, administering the church or, or entertaining the church or whatever it might be. That's not the primary role. Some people envisioning it as various things. It's funny how people view uh, the role of a pastor or a teacher or evangelist. But the primary role is to equip so that they might be what? So people might be ready for the work of service. For the work of service. That word for service is the word for ministry. Same word from which we get the word ministry. So people are equipped so that they can do the work of ministry. That's not to say that those who are the leaders of the church should not also do ministry. That's not to say that they are above it all at all. Some people come out of seminary and they're not willing to pick up garbage or not willing. They say, oh, my job is to teach the Bible and that's all that they do. Well, that's not that all the, the connotation. They should be able to because the ministry is a shared responsibility. But it's not uncommon for people, on the other hand, to look at a leader or look at the leaders or look at a church in a consumeristic type of role. They come to a church and look at it as a consumer item and say, well, you know what? The staff are the hired hands. That's why we hired them in the first place. And the expectation is that they would do all of the work. I have one friend. His name is Wayne. He was a pastor and took a church out on the East Coast a number of years ago. Some of you know him. He's quite a character. And of course, he was expected when he first took this church years and years ago. He's no longer there, I believe. But he's expected to teach and to preach each week, which is very reasonable. It's very reasonable to expect them to administrate the church, to lead the church, to do counseling and all of the things that a pastor normally does. But what made it difficult on him was that he was also expected to teach a computer class, teach a foreign language class, be the church custodian, in addition to raising his family of three or four young children. Needless to say, all of that, he didn't stay at that church for a very long time. Now, I'm very, very grateful, I have to say, that the sentiment here in this church, in fact, is a very high percentage of people compared to many churches that do serve here in this ministry, do give a lot of your time. And for that, we're very grateful. Everyone from the musicians to the children's ministry to the many small groups, those of you, this particular church, I'm just very, very just encouraged by because people here, they know that maybe it's because we're, we're, we meet in a school and it's kind of hard just to stand around and not not fold up a chair afterwards, not hard to, to do whatever it might be. But let me encourage you. Let me encourage you, if you're not serving in some way, I want to encourage you to be a person who helps out and serves in the church in some way, shape, or form. 
Maybe you can stay a little bit later after 12.30 when we begin to clean up to help wipe the table or you see a piece of garbage on the ground, just pick it up or fold up the tables that need to be done. Help to, to help to pack up the van or, or, or come early to help set up at 8.30. You know, there's never been a sign-up sheet for those who help to set up or clean up. We've been very blessed because people see things need to be done and you just stick out and, and do it. And the, the result of all of that, of everyone using their gifts, whether it is a gift of teaching or of mercy or compassion, showing others compassion or the gift of giving or whatever it might be, is that the church, it says in the text, is built up, is built up, is made strong. When everyone gives and uses their gifts from the body of Christ and everyone is built up, And that is how spiritual gifts and gifted people work within the body of the church. And everyone has a spiritual gift. Everyone has a gift and things that they enjoy, things that they have uh, that are that are listed in in 1 Corinthians and in Romans that are there. And that is another subject to tailor to. But in our society, we can be very individualistic or we say, no, it's me and We don't see that there is a holistic picture here of the unity of the church, which he's just talked about, and the building up of the church when everyone uses their gifts in the body of Christ. And it's through the word of God, but that's not where it stays. It is through the equipping so that they might be equipped for the ministries to serve in the ministry. I remember when I was in seminary and I was at Dallas, and this was umpteen years ago, and I had to taking a class and there was a particular guy there that I took note of. He had gotten there, I think, years before I had. And he had uh, studied there and I could tell he was a real studious type of a fella. And he was a really studious type of a fella and uh, it's funny because uh, I had finished there and then years later I decided I was going to start a, um, a doctoral program there. And it took me five years to complete that. And I remember going back one time near graduation. And I remember still seeing that guy there as a student. And there are people, I thought to myself, that enjoy really studying the Word of God. They enjoy theology. They enjoy conferences. They enjoy being trained or whatever it might be, having formal training or whatever it might be. But they love that aspect of it. But that's not where it stops. stops. God equips us so that we can be used of God in the ministry to serve, to teach, and to bless others. That is the purpose by which we've grown. Many of you have a wonderful heritage. Heritage of good, solid teaching in a church. People that have invested their lives in you. People maybe have even taught you in a class or classes or whatever it might be. And you think to yourself about beyond the walls of this church, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Christians who would just be blessed by you, by others. Even those who are younger Christians here in this area or around your neighborhood or people that you know that can be ministered to by you, who can be blessed to serve by your service. And that is what the equipping and training purpose is for. And I think often to myself, on a personal note, I think often to myself of what Jesus said in Luke 12:48, To whom has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. You've been given a lot. I've been given a lot. And to that Jesus requires of us, he expects of us, 
to use those in the body of Christ that it might be built up. And that is why I feel a burden too when, they go on these, when I'm invited to go on these uh, short-term mission trips to be able to teach because there are many pastors out there who have no one who will go to teach them. And the way that they prepare, I remember talking with the, the missionaries who were, um, who were currently ministering in Africa. And we're going to go and serve alongside of them and to teach and to train other pastors there. And that's what part, of, uh, part of my role. And they were telling me about how they would put on a, a seminar just last summer. And there would be a lot of pastors who would come. A lot of African pastors who would come. Ugandan pastors who would come. Or Sudanese pastors who would come. They would put on this sermon. To, and, and they would train them and teach them the Bible. And teach them about the gospel and things like that. And there would be a few people there. Inevitably. Who would become saved. These are pastors who are ministering to others who aren't even saved. Who don't know the Lord. Who don't know what it means to grow. And so I ask, well, you know, they tell me about how they prepare their sermons. What they do when they prepare their messages because they lead other people. They prepare their messages by turning on the TV and watching the TV evangelists. Or those who are the pastors on TV and copying the sermons off so that they can have something from the Word of God to teach others. And there are many, many needs, not only around the world, but around where you are. And you have been given gifts and have that responsibility to minister to others. And this whole process, you see, the whole process is, is similar to, 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 to what you would even expect in a family. Of equipping so that they can serve and then so that they can do what? The third thing, which is be more mature and be, build up the church. You would expect the family to do the same thing, wouldn't you? You'd expect those who are parents to be training and teaching and equipping their own children. You give them an education. You, you, you teach them wisdom for life. You teach them practicalities so that what they'll be well equipped. Not so that they can do what? Sit on the couch and play video games? No. You, you teach them so they can serve or minister not only to others but to your family. I mean, you see it in early agrarian cultures where we were perhaps more uh, farmers or whatnot. You know, they'd have a family and you just stereotypical picture where the kids, once they're young, they're given responsibilities in the family to get up early in the morning with dad and to go milk the cow, to feed the chickens or whatever it might be so they can be a blessing to the family and so that they can learn all of these skills so that the whole family can be blessed. The mom and dad can't do everything all the time forever, but the whole family can be blessed. Those of you who are still living at home, how blessed do you think your parents would be if they came home one day and the garbage was emptied, the house was all vacuumed, the dog was fed, the lawn was mowed? You'd probably shock them. I mean, this is the type of thing that is expected as people mature. They see something that needs to be done. They're not, you know, the, the, the one that perhaps doesn't have a good training would say, Dad, the garbage needs to be emptied. Why don't you go? And they have the sense of entitlement where everything is done for them. That's not how the church is to be either. The church is to be equipped people who know the Word of God and who minister the Word of God. And as people grow older, they grow in more maturity. And now you'll, you'll hope too that it's not to, well, uh, uh, my mom and my dad didn't ever ask me to do it, so I don't do it. They never assigned that. No, wouldn't it be wonderful if you ever did it without having to be asked those chores at home? 
Wouldn't that be wonderful? And in the same sense, it's funny because when it comes to the church, some people just never ever serve unless they're asked. I'm never asked to. I don't know why or whatever, but I'll tell you one thing is that many who say, well, I've never been asked to serve aren't the ones who are looking every week. How can they help out in little ways to serve the Lord? Jesus certainly didn't come to the earth with that perspective. No, he came, as he said in Matthew 10:45. what? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those of you who are still living at home, let me ask you, do you go home and do you think to yourself, I've come home to be served? Or do you think to yourself, how can I serve? How can I help out my, my parents at home? How can I help to make life easier? Mom and dad, maybe one of or two of them have worked all day long. How can I make things better for them? Do you say, like Christ said, I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve. In the same way the church is to be like that. We come to serve one another with the gifts that God has given to us. He's given to us gifted leaders so that they can be equipping Christians so they'll be more mature. And thirdly, for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. The third point is growing the church through speaking truth in love. That is, to build up the church through speaking truth in love. It says here in verse 14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is Christ. You know, the results are clear. A mature, growing person is a doctrinally discerning person. Is a doctrinally discerning person. They're not easily swayed, not easily tricked. In fact, that word there for for trickery comes from the word kubia, from which we get the word uh, cube. That's the idea from which we get the word dice. And back then, they had people who would be the gamblers as well, who would use loaded dice. And that is the the word that is used here for trickery. You're not tricked by somebody who has loaded dice doctrinally. They're not crafty people that you're going to be deceived by. I mean, children, when they're young, you can tell them anything. You can tell them anything and they'll believe it. They'll take it as doctrinal truth. I remember my father, when I was little, my father told me peanut butter came from peanuts and butter. So I cracked open a bunch of peanuts one day and I took a bunch of butter and I mashed the peanuts and I mashed the butter and I took a big bite out of that. I said, this doesn't taste like peanut butter for some reason. Not only does it not look like it looked yellow, I thought to myself, maybe it's because I didn't put in the peanut skins. So I put in the peanut skins and I mashed it all up and for some reason it wouldn't turn brown enough and I tried, Dad, how come this doesn't taste like peanut butter? I mean, there are little things that you tell little kids and they'll believe because they're undiscerning. Kind of like when I used to believe, you know, chocolate milk came from brown cows. Lighter milk, maybe they're the black and white cows. I know better now. When I was a child, I'd stick my finger into the electrical socket, shocking all of my muscles. I know better now. You don't do those things. And one of the problems today is that people within the church don't understand and know doctrine. They're easily swayed. They'll believe whatever you tell them to. They're not thinking. They're not antithetical thinkers. And that is what the Word of God and the equipping does for us. 
It helps us to be discerning so that we're not caught up in the latest church fad, the latest church trend, the latest thing that you get in the mail, the new coming seminar that blows through for about five or ten years and blows out the back door. And you've seen that time and time again when you study the decades of the church and how it's progressed, even in the last 30 years. So many things have blown through the church. But that is the reason why God has given gifted leaders to the church so they can teach and equip so that those people can serve. And when they serve, the church is built up and it is built up through the means of speaking truth in love. Speaking truth in love. That is what it says. True unity, true maturity, true spiritual growth is characterized by speaking what is true. By speaking what is true with the motivation of love. And it particularly has to do, I believe, with teaching. With teaching. You know, it's funny because some people are so afraid of, of speaking what is true. Are so afraid of speaking what is true because they don't want to offend or hurt someone's feelings or, or whatever it is. Some people have no problem with speaking what is true. The hard part is speaking it in love. And you can't do one or the other. Well, you know, some people just speak their mind all the time. And that ends up causing uh, burned buildings and relationships down, whatever it might occur. But both are required if one is to grow. There are some churches who will not preach certain things. They won't say the word sin or they won't talk about hell. Why? Because they don't want people to be offended and to say, no, I don't want to be a part of a church that believes that thing. But speaking the truth is so very critical. And that is where building up of the body, it says being fitted together, held together according to how every part is to work and everyone grows together. And that's how the the church is to grow. When everyone is functioning in their part. And that is how many organizations happen. You know, it's springtime now, and there's a park by my house, and and now the, the, the park has all sorts of activities. They have Little League, or I think of when there's soccer. You never watch little kids play soccer. It's so entertaining. You know why? Because wherever the ball goes, that's where everyone goes, right? And the ball pops over there, and they're all running over there. They don't know anything about playing positions. Well, you go and you begin to teach them a little bit more about positions, and you go and they're playing in Little League or T-ball or whatnot, and it's funny there. You talk about positions. There, they'll stay in their position. The ball goes out to left field. Nobody shifts. They all become petrified observers, and they all watch, and the ball is thrown, and it's not going to them, so they don't need to move. And so they'll just watch the ball go to overthrow, and then next thing you know, some kid has made a home run on a single. Mature, successful teams, though. As the teams mature, as kids mature, they learn how to function as a team. And that is to be characterized by the church. When the church is more mature, they have gifted leaders who equip for the purpose of ministry, that the church might be built up. And thirdly, speaking the truth in love, we are frank about the things that we have, so that what the body, it says, might be built up. Fitted together, held together, built up of itself in love. You see, the church was never designed. The church was never designed for a few people to give most of their time, most of their life, that others might be built up. It is never to be seen as a consumer item. It is never to be seen by others that say, hey, you know what? They're here for me. No, we come and say to ourselves, are we like Christ that I have come to serve, not to be served? 
Is that our attitude even when we go home? That our family might be built up? That is to be the same in the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. And Lord, you have blessed us, each and every person here, with gifts, abilities, differing propensities to serve. And yet you have called us to serve. And we pray, Father, that we might come and recognize, God, that each one of us, Lord, who has placed their faith and trust in you is important, is critical. Is so important, Father, that the church might be built up and encouraged so that we can be mature, discerning of truth, and that we might speak that truth in love. May you cause us as a church to grow together, to be encouragements to one another, as the family which you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.